So I've been thinking about this series for several months, and uh, we um, love the idea of beginning this series called Small Town. Now, uh, many of you uh, didn't uh, grow up in a small town. Maybe you grew up in a metropolitan area, and you located out here to a small town. And oftentimes, people locate out to a small town for reasons such as this. They go, hey, there's less people. Um, and because there's less people, we don't have to, to fight with traffic and all the things that go with that. And there's other people that go, you know, I just want the idea of Mayberry. I want a place where people know me and I want to be able to contribute to my community. I want to be a part of something. Uh, some of us love the quirky traditions like festivals, like um, a bluebird festival, right? Um, or maybe it's the Heritage Festival in Edgewood. I mean, you just love the idea of different things. And then you think, well, there's definitely less crime and less drugs. And, you know, I don't want to raise my kid in, in the schools in inner city Dallas. I want to get out to where there's something better. And so there's all of these different things. And then you think, well, there's also lower cost of living. I mean, I can't afford to live in the Metroplex, but I can't afford something outside of the Metroplex. And there's all these reasons. But I thought all these were terrible reasons, actually, as a teenager to move out to a small town. <laughs> Matter of fact, uh, when I uh, was in the year 1999, I couldn't wait to break out of this place. Matter of fact, all the things that many of us think that make this place nostalgic and fun and family-friendly are all the things that I hated about it. Uh, matter of fact, I wanted out because it meant that I didn't have to see people that I knew and people that knew me. And moreover than that, I'm like, isn't it okay just to have some freedom and not everybody know all my business and not... Everybody know all of my, my family's business. And, and so when I uh, was growing up here and graduated here in Wills Point in 99, my dad was the football coach and athletic director. And so if they didn't know me, they knew him. And I remember for getting in trouble, oftentimes for things that I said, and then we'd get back to him and he would come and he would ask me, Brandon, what were you doing when you said this? And I'm like, dad, I don't know what I was doing. I didn't expect that to get back to you, right? <laughs> <laughs> but it did, and I wanted a fast pace of life. I mean, why in the world does somebody want a boring, mundane, slow-paced life? That doesn't sound fun at all. I want energy. I want excitement. Why do I want fewer people when I can explore with more people? After all, I didn't believe the girl that was in my future was here anyway. I thought, well, surely she's got to be out somewhere in the world in this big, far, vast place. I mean, there's got to be other fish in the sea, right? And the sea's got to be bigger than the small town environment that I'm so accustomed to. Matter of fact, I wanted out of this place. Matter of fact, there are some parents in here that you have a daughter or son that they're a junior or a senior. And what they used to love about having friends now uh, in some ways has become betrayal. And now they're like, I don't love them anymore and I just want some new friends. And they think, we're going to find that in college. And so what happens is, is we encourage our kids to go and we want them to explore bigger dreams. And maybe even sometimes we'll say something like this, is baby, I want you to go and I want you to be something because I got stuck here in this small town and I don't want you to have to have that. I want you to explore. I want you to make something of yourself. I want you to make good money and I want you to have great um, time exploring and traveling and all these different things. And what's interesting about that is that that's beginning to become the trend. 
uh, more and more people are now beginning to move out of rural places and into urban fringes or into urban uh, centered areas. More and more people are leaving the idea of Mayberry and they think that there's more power, uh, there's more uh, job opportunities and so many other things in the bigger city. Now, I get it. There are many of us in this room here that you're like, no, I, I want the big city benefits, but I'll just drive into them and I'll live out here. But the bottom line is this, is what we're seeing is there's an epidemic where the small town mentality is becoming one in which you have to embrace to want to stay or or are you going to have to decide something different because right now what's being encouraged is for people to move into bigger places. Matter of fact, you you may go, how, how do you even conclude this? And and what I've seen is, is I've seen it in, in the church sector, uh, particularly in church planting. Church planting is something that's been happening over the last 15 or 20 years. Uh, it's been popularized, I would say, in the last decade or so. But what's interesting is, is in most church planting scenarios, they're encouraging church planters to go, go to urban centers or urban fringes, meaning places that are benefiting from the urban center growth and that are moving out onto the very fringe areas. Those people are the ones that are being encouraged to go and plant there. Matter of fact, I remember when I first mentioned that I feel like God's called me to Will's Point, even though I was trying to resist the call. Um, I remember people going, you don't want to go out there. And here's the reasons they listed. One is because there's not going to be enough critical mass to sustain everything. Secondly, everybody that you're trying to reach, I mean, they probably already go to church because doesn't everybody go to church in Mayberry? And then thirdly, if they're not going to church, then they're mad at the church because there's already enough churches out there. I mean, honestly, when you look at a place like Will's Point, there's not enough people. They all go to church anyway, and why do you need another church? Because you got 40 in about a seven-mile radius. All reasons to discourage a young guy like me going, hey, I'm going to go charge the world in a small town. And so what would they rather say? They would say, I would rather you go to a place where there's great growth and critical mass. And here's what they basically said. If you want to succeed as a church planter, you need to go where there's lots more people and where you can grow up to be something strong. Now, listen, if the Lord hadn't called me here and it was a specific call from the Lord, then guess what? I would have been enticed by an urban fringe. The reason why, let's just be honest. I mean, there's amenities there. I mean, Guys, restaurants and grocery stores, lots of different varieties, like all these different perks. And and listen, I I know you're going to hate me for this. I get it. But I want to be able to shop at one more than just one place in town. I want to look for good deals and I want to compare prices. I want to save a dollar or two. And you're like, oh, dude, you're not really a small town guy, are you? Listen, can I just tell you that I wrestle with it. Matter of fact, as we start the series, I'm like, man, what is our hope for being in a small town? I mean, honestly, I mean, if we're all out here in a small town, I mean, surely there's a perk, right? I mean, surely there's something here. And here's what I've concluded. There's a couple of things that are encouraging. And the first one is, and it's probably the greatest encouragement, is that Jesus was from a small town. I mean, that's what I got. Jesus was from Nazareth. And now think about this for just a second. Jesus, the king of the world, the one who would lay his life down for his friends, was from a little podunk place called Nazareth. 
Now, Nazareth was a, uh, a, a little province in the area of Galilee. It was a Roman province, and um, it was located up in the hills um, near uh, the Mediterranean Sea and, and the Sea of Galilee. It was about 80 miles north of the epicenter of Jerusalem, the capital city of, of, of the Jewish state. And, and so Jesus was ultimately going to be raised there. And, and we don't know a whole lot about Nazareth other than what we know of archaeological digs and finds in recent years. What we do know is that it seemed to be a, a little village off the beaten path. It, it wasn't on the main thoroughfares or the trade routes. It was, a, it was a little quaint place in which most likely there wouldn't have been more than 500 or, or really 2,000 people. I mean, it was somewhere in that area. Some estimates would say it was around 500 people. Um, conservative estimates would say that. Maybe it was up to about 2,000. Either way, it was something that we could all identify here with, whether we be in Wills Point or whether we be in Edgewood. It was definitely a quaint place in which it appeared that a lot of people knew each other. They were a pro- a prominently a farming community, and so it means that they were able to uh, ultimately raised their own things, probably bartered and uh, bought and sold within their own little context. They didn't have to go far to provide for all their needs. Now, you remember Jesus' father, Joseph, uh, was a carpenter, and so he must have had a little carpentry business doing what he needed to do and providing for all of their family needs there, and that's where they settled. And, and we don't know a whole lot about Jesus' life other than here's what we know is that he lived in anonymity for a long time. Uh, He was, in a sense, in a quiet, rural place, learning from parents that uh, must have thought that there was something about Nazareth that would have been special. And here's what we know, is that Nazareth wasn't that special. And you go, well, how do you know that? Well, I remember when Jesus is calling his disciples. In John chapter 1, Jesus is going to call his disciples, and he's going to got John and Peter and those guys, and he's going to say, hey, I want you to come and follow me, and I'm going to make you fishers of men. I'm going to make you a disciple. And then he calls Philip, and you can see this outline in John chapter 1, verse 43. It says that the next day he decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip, and he said to him, I want you to follow me. And so Philip apparently gets excited about that. And so now Philip was from Bethsaida, the the city of Andrew and Peter. And so Philip went and found Nathanael and he said to him, Hey, we have found the one whom is from Moses and the law, also the one that the prophets wrote about, Jesus of Nazareth, the, the son of Joseph. And so if you can imagine the excitement, Philip has been called by Jesus to become an apostle, and then he goes to Nathaniel, and he goes, hey, Nathaniel, I, I think you should come. Come be a, an apostle. Come be a part of what God's going to do with us. And he goes, I want, to, I want you to come follow the one that Moses talked about, that all the law, all the prophets, all the Old Testament is spoken about. I want you to come and follow him. His name's Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel goes, do, say, what? Jesus of what? Jesus of Nazareth. And his response is, what good can come from Nazareth? I mean, that's what he said. He goes, what good comes from Nazareth? I, I didn't even know that anything good could come from a little place like that. Now, here's what you know about Nazareth. Nothing. The Old Testament write about Nazareth. Intertestamental, intertestamental period, which is a 400-year period, basically silence. Historians didn't write about it. There's nothing annotated by uh, the historian Josephus who wrote about everything. He didn't say anything about Nazareth. I mean, here's what you got. You this little quaint village off the beaten path, providing for themselves. It's Mayberry. Jesus, the Son of God, is going to be raised there. 
And that's all you know about it. It is just this little, small town. But as you begin to think about that, this little, small town obviously gets a bad rap. And it gets a bad rap, and it's, I think, the same reason that many of us give a small town a bad rap is that we think that the big and the powerful things happen in urban centers. We think that influence resides best in bigger places. But I love that that's not the way that God works. Matter of fact, God thought of it this way, that his son Jesus, Isaiah 53, would say that he would be of no comely appearance. That at the end of the day, that God wasn't about impressing people through the way that his son looked. But he was about making a difference on planet earth. And he would do it in a different way than most people naturally expect. Jesus wasn't going to come to be the king that overthrew Rome. Jesus was going to be the king that came from quiet places in humility to serve those that were less fortunate than him. What's interesting about Jesus and his ministry is you watch, he would send out the 72, and oftentimes he would send them to small places. Jesus would oftentimes meet with the most influential of people. Jesus didn't hang around the people that you and I think would be powerful. Matter of fact, that's one of the great problems that Jewish leaders had with Jesus is they thought that he should have been hanging out with more influential, political, powerful people in big places. And yet Jesus seemed to follow the trend of hanging out with the less than, the ones who were weak and feeble, and those in some ways who identified with this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, from quiet, humble beginnings. Now, the point of today's message isn't to knock big cities, but what the point of today's message is to help you realize what God can do in small town settings. And what I think is become a place in our culture, in our time, to give a bias for urban centers and ultimately urban fringes. And I see that in lots of different areas. But here's the unique thing is this, is if you and I would quit trying to convince ourselves and our kids that there are bigger and better things out there beyond. And we began to help them realize how blessed we could be out here in small places. I think we could begin to get traction with seeing God do some extraordinary things. And here's why. Because the God of the Bible, time and time and time again, produces his best results through the ordinary. So God always accomplishes extraordinary things through what seems average, mundane, boring, and ordinary. I mean, think about it just for a few moments. Uh, If you remember uh, in Acts chapter 4, verse 13 through 16, uh, Peter and John have been traveling and they've been seeing people come to faith in Jesus. They've been doing signs and wonders and uh, there's been these incredible, incredible and marvelous things that are transpiring through their ministry. Jesus already ascended to the right hand of the Father at this time. The early church is beginning to, to, to flourish. And as it's beginning to flourish, these men, these apostles, are literally beginning to turn the world upside down. Now, Paul, by and large, oftentimes you'd think would go to, to big places, but guys here like Peter and John are going wherever the gospel could take root. And as they're going, uh, they're going to make some waves. And the reason why is because anytime you begin to change a culture, there's going to create some tension. And so this tension has now brought Peter and John in front of a council of Sadducees, a group of men who are going to begin to ask them questions and hopefully charge them with some sort of an offense. 
They wanted to charge them with an offense ultimately so that they could snuff out the spread of the gospel, the good news of Jesus across the world. And so they bring these guys in, and here's what they determine in Acts chapter 4, verse 13 through 16. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and their response to the council is what it is, they perceived that they, meaning these apostles, were uneducated, common men. They were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Now, when it says that they were uneducated, it doesn't mean that they were, were uh, in a sense, um, redneck hicks who were dumb and unintelligent. It, it, it wasn't that. What they recognized is that these were common, ordinary men who hadn't gone to Harvard or Yale or to some seminary training. What they realized is that these were just ordinary men who didn't have Jewish training under a Pharisee or a Sadducee or anyone else in some sort of, of sophisticated training. What they were were just men who had been hanging out with Jesus. Now, why is that good news? The reason that's good news is at the end of the day, we know that Jesus uses the weaker things of the world to shame the wise. We'll show that to you in just a second. But here's what's incredible. Look at verse 14. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. I mean, what's the most they could say about these guys? These guys are unschooled, they're uneducated, they're common men, and they've been with Jesus. And then they look at this guy who's been healed and they've got nothing to say. In verse 15, it says, But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred together, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident that all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. At the end of the day, they go, Listen, we know that what they've done is obviously not on their own. These are just, these are just men, ordinary, unschooled men. I mean, when you start thinking about that, that's a pretty incredible thing. I mean, I'm pretty sure that Peter would have just died a fisherman if Jesus wouldn't have called him to follow him. I mean, that's what Peter had to offer the world. He was a good fisherman. I mean, that's what you think is going to change the world, right? A good fisherman? At least there's hope for some of us in this room, right? <laughs> and then you got Moses. I mean, you think about Moses just kind of living by himself, again, in anonymity not really known, and then God is going to show up to him, and he's going to say, hey, Moses, I want you to go, and I want you to go to the leader of the Egyptian nation, and I want you to tell him to let my people go. And if you remember Moses, he says, no, 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 no. No, I am not the guy. Um, I'm just I, I mean, I'm, I'm just from a small town. I'm a little small village. I just tend to my sheep. I mean, what do you, I don't even speak well. I'm not eloquent. I can't go. I mean, get somebody else. I mean, think about Mary, the mother of Jesus. She was raised in the very town that she would raise Jesus in, Nazareth. I mean, she is a, a little teenage girl living in, in, in a quiet place of solitude, living in Mayberry, and God shows up and says, you are going to be the one who produces the Son of God, the one who will change the world. I mean, could you imagine if she gets this response from the angel? I mean, what is her response? Me? But that's what's so incredible about the gospel. I mean, think about David. 
David, this, this little boy, Samuel, is going to go to Jesse, the father of David. And he goes, listen, God has commissioned me to come to you because the next king is going to come from the household of Jesse. And so, hey, Jesse, if you don't mind, bring me all your sons. And so son number one comes in, and he looks like he would be the middle linebacker of the Dallas Cowboys. He's handsome, he's ruddy, he's strong, and God says, no, it's not him. And then number two comes in, and number two looks better than the first one. Because I don't know how that happens, but the second one always looks better than the first one. <laughs> it's not him. And then the third one, well, it happened again, right? I mean, and it just goes down the line. And as you get there, I mean, there's seven different ones that come in front of, of Samuel and, and Jesse. And he goes, it's not him. There's got to be another one. And the eighth one is out tending to the sheep. He's the one of no comely appearance. He's the one who is the mere image and the reflection of who God wants to use, just like that of his son, Jesus of Nazareth, the one who seems to be a nobody that God makes a somebody. Here it is, Jesse, going to become uh, ultimately the grandfather of this incredible nation that's going to be produced through his son, but the one in which is a reflection of what God wants to do. And that is that God doesn't look at the outward appearance, but he always looks at the heart. God is concerned about what's inside. He's not concerned about what we have to offer him, but he's concerned about our humility before him. David, this this boy, not only going to become the king of Israel, but he's the one who would stand up against the great giant who continually mocked and jeered and yelled, from the Philistine hills every single day as the sun dawned that the Israelites were weak and feeble. And if you remember, David would come at Goliath and Goliath would say, who are you? That a little tiny little guy would come at me. Are you like, like a dog? And the idea is that when he slung that sling and that stone, ultimately, God would prevail. Why? Because God prevails by using his son, the God-man, Jesus, from a small town to produce extraordinary results as he invested in men who were nobodies that produced extraordinary results. And that is the theme of all of your Bible. Weak, feeble-minded people that God uses. It baffles me that the church in America has reversed it. What I mean by that is in this moment, there are thousands upon thousands of churches right now that their pastors have a vacant position. And you know why they're so vacant? It's because they can't find the powerful, prominent speaker that's got all the education they require to be able to lead their church. Because somehow when we form these committees, we want the perfect guy. We want the guy who can make all the the hospital visits. We want the guy who has the best sermons, who has the best leadership capabilities. We want the guy who's intellectually savvy, who has all the degrees on the wall. And quite frankly, the guy doesn't exist. And quite frankly, that's not how God uses men to lead the church. See, I think the greatest thing I think about what God's produced here is that God is making somebody out of nobodies. I mean, honestly, I, I really oftentimes look, and, and 
I hope that you take this in a, in a, in a, a loving way. But I oftentimes look around and I go, oh my goodness, these people that I get to serve with, I mean, they wouldn't even been selected in their former churches. I mean, they were looked over. Obviously, there must have been other skilled or more educated, more educated people. And I'm like, you know what's so encouraging about this place? This is a bunch of weak, feeble-minded people who have been changed by God. And God's saying, I can use you. And that's the theme of our Bible. That is the theme of everything in Scripture, is that God can use the Simon Peter, that God can use the Moses and the David, that God can use the Gideon, and that he can use the teenage girl like Mary. I don't know about you, but that brings me hope. The reason it brings me hope is that God always produces something with those who are humble. I mean, that's James 4, verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposed the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I don't know about you, but... It's okay to be broken, and it's okay to acknowledge your brokenness. It's okay to acknowledge your weakness, and ultimately that God will be strong on your behalf. I mean, that's kind of the idea of 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But we have the, this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. At the end of the day, it's okay to not be okay. I don't know about you, but it's okay to be from a podunk town called Wills Point or Edgewood or Quinlan, or Roland Oaks, which I had the privilege of being there yesterday, or Falba, or Myrtle Springs, or Canton, or Van, or wherever it is. You have the privilege of being from places like that. And you know what that means is that when we are from places like that, that even though they seem seemingly small, that God can do incredible things in small places with ordinary actions. Why? Because ordinary actions in small places will ultimately not ever go unnoticed in the long term. I don't know if you realize it, but being from a small town is not all that it may be cracked up to be. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm sure there are some of you that you've been here your whole lives and you love it, and, and I get it. I understand. I, I, I get it. You're bleeding purple in Edgewood. You're bleeding blue, okay? Um, I understand that. But can I just tell you that with a small town, there are some major challenges? But here's the good news. When you start thinking about small towns, you remember that Jesus is from one and, and God used him, and you remember that God can use ordinary to do extraordinary. Here's what's incredible about small town challenges is that it makes room for a big time God. I mean, think about that for just a second. I know that a lot of people, uh, probably for the reasons I listed earlier, move out to a small town. They think, oh, we can move out to a small town because I don't, I mean, after all, I don't want my kids going to school in inner city Dallas. I mean, I don't, I don't want them dealing with that, so let's move out and, and let's get into the sticks, right? Can I just tell you that right now there are a variety of challenges that are happening in rural places. Matter of fact, one of those is education. A lot of people um, don't realize that education can be a challenge. And, and the reason that education is a challenge is not because you have less than great teachers, what you have is you have some challenges in the rural areas that you're not seeing 
oftentimes in urban fringes. Matter of fact, urban fringes, which would resonate with you, places like Frisco or Forney or Carrollton or other places like that, they, they have some of the best schools and they have some of the best amenities. And oftentimes, by and large, statistically, they measure at a greater proportion than what happens with um, metropolitan centers and ultimately rural areas. But what you'll notice is in rural areas and metropolitan areas, you have some of the same things that are happening. And the lie is that you've believed is, is I'll move out to the small town because the small town makes it all better. At the end of the day, the small town doesn't make it all better. And here's why. One of the reasons we have a hard time educating kids is because many of the kids that we're trying to educate can't read. And the reason they can't read isn't because they have really bad parents. The reason they can't read is because oftentimes their parents aren't home because they're working a couple of jobs and they're trying to make income to survive. At the end of the day, what that produces is not just kids who are behind the national reading averages, but it also produces some other challenges in economic proportions. Now listen, you also have parents that um, it's not that they're searching after a job, it's that they're, they're searching after the next high. And because they're searching after the next high, oftentimes their kids not only don't know how to read, but they don't have baths, they don't They're not clean, they're not only not educated, but they're not fed. And because of all these challenges, it begins to just snowball on you. And what's happening is is it's right here in our own neighborhoods, it's in our own backyard. It's not just in these communities, but it's also in other communities. It's in lake areas, it's also in these areas that oftentimes many of our bus routes in Edgewood and Wills Point both are tapping towards. And what we have is not less than great teachers or bad schools. What we have is an education challenge. And the education challenge always starts at home, just as our spiritual challenge does. And so what you need to know is out here in the small town, when you begin to look just stat for stat, there are as many drugs in small town rural America as there are in metropolitan centers, neck for neck. But what's interesting is when you really begin to zero in on Wills Point, Edgewood proper, Vincent County, we are statistically higher than the national average out here. What we have noticed as we begin to really dig in some of the research here at Stone Point is that we have an opioid and alcohol addiction challenge within nine miles of this building. It is larger than the national average and it's something by and large the church isn't addressing. And the reason the church isn't addressing isn't because the church by and large in small town rural America doesn't care. It's because most churches by and large in rural America are dying and they're closing their doors. They need to be revitalized. The problem is, is that most people don't think that the church should thrive. Matter of fact, you have a ton of people that live in rural areas that are driving into metropolitan fringes to go to church. And the reason why is because they think that church has done better there. And so what's happening is they're leaving the place where they can have the greatest impact ultimately because they want their spiritual needs met and they want more for their kids. What you need to know is that by and large in rural America, churches are dying. Thousands of them are closing their doors. And the reason why is because they can't even afford to keep the light bill on, much less pay for a pastor. And listen, I I can just tell you that more and more pastors are having to settle for this bivocational gig, meaning that they're going to have to work at Home Depot and pastor. The The ability to be able to shepherd and pastor our people and to be able to be paid for it here is an incredible blessing because a lot of pastors in America don't get that, particularly in rural areas. 
But what does that mean for us? If we have education and drug addiction challenges, if we have um, lower socioeconomic challenges than anyone else really in our area, meaning we're in the top 10 counties in all of Texas in terms of socioeconomic needs, what does that say? It means that we've got a lot of work to do. Matter of fact, I shared this, and I'm too transparent sometimes. Uh, We pay our staff here at Stone Point 80% of the national average, but we don't do it based off our church size. We do it off of a lower socioeconomic giving rate. What I'm saying is is this, is that all of our pastors ought to be making $30,000 more than they are now but we can't because of low socioeconomic needs. And so what we've settled on is an 80% ratio of the national average based off of churches that are significantly smaller than ours, even though their giving is about the same per capita. I'm the only one on our staff that breaks that trend. I'm at 65% of the national average because at the end of the day, our church can't support all of our staff the way it should. And listen, some of it is because many of us in here could be more generous, but by and large, we live in a so a lower socioeconomic area. I mean, there's a lot of people that are so faithful to give, and you give $25 or $50 uh, every week or uh, even in some cases every month. At the end of the day, here's what I want you to realize is that there are some real perks about being in a small town, but there are also some real challenges. But here's the deal. Here's what I know about all these challenges. All of these challenges make room for a big-time God. I had a friend in Dallas when I was serving there, and um, he was working for Fellowship of Christian Athletes in the Dallas metropolitan area, and uh, he was charged with leading on the SMU campus. I remember me and Chauncey were having um, coffee at one point, and, and we were just talking about some of the challenges. I was working a couple of local high schools, helping some FCA groups, and, and I'll never forget what he said. He goes, I'm having a huge challenge making the gospel go forth on the SMU campus. And I said, well, wh- what is your biggest challenge? And he said, it's a real challenge showing God to someone who doesn't need God. At the end of the day, every SMU kid, they have more money and more education than they ever need. Matter of fact, most of them are driving nicer vehicles than you and I will ever own. They have mom and dad's Visa card in their back pocket. They can go to North Park Mall today and buy whatever they want. They have great education. They've always had great support. They have nothing that they need. And so when you can be your own God, why do you need a God? And I thought that's a really good point. And what's happening is, is that the gospel is having a hard time gaining traction, traction with people who are already their own God, who have everything that can ultimately self-sustain it. And listen, that's probably some of the challenge for many of us in this room. Why do we need God when we can be our own God? I'm self-sustaining, self-supporting. I got everything I need. I provide for myself. I've got all the education. I provide all the kids. But listen, that is not the case for most people out here. Most people have big challenges, big needs, and they need a big God. And you know the person that's to show them the big God? It's the weak, the feeble one, in humility, just like me and you, that can show what God has done in our lives. You know, at the end of the day, I could send out my resume to 100 churches right now that are our size or larger, and I wouldn't get an interview. You know why I wouldn't get an interview? It's because I don't have a master's degree. I'm about 15 hours short of it. And you know what? I'm not inclined to go get it. Here's why. Number one is because I don't really enjoy online blackboard pages. I don't enjoy busy work. I don't enjoy writing papers. 
I enjoy studying my Bible, and I enjoy ministering to people. But you know what I've realized over the last eight years is that I was never qualified to lead this thing, and I'll never be qualified to lead it. And there's not a single thing I can read in a textbook or another thing that an educator could teach me to make me qualified. Here's what I know. I'm a broken man in need of Jesus from a small town, had big dreams, and I believed that God would use me to accomplish those. And I had no idea that he would bring me back to a place where there was so much brokenness, so much pain, and some really terrible roads. to be able to accomplish such a task. But you know what I'm not going to tell my kids? I'm not going to tell my kids, hey, that somehow I got the raw end of this deal and somehow God planted me out in rural Texas to do a mundane job and pastor people until retirement. But Brady, Caleb, Blakely, I want you to go chase bigger dreams. I want you to do more than I ever got. I want you to explore more. You know what my hope is? I hope that they'll stay and they'll invest in a county who desperately needs Jesus. And I pray that some of us would get our heads out of our rear ends and that we would know that there are needs all around us. And I pray that we would realize there's opportunities for us to serve. Guys, we have a school district or two right here in this local area that they would love to have some mentors, that you would give them just a couple hours a week that you could read to kids or that you could be a father figure to a couple of kids. Yesterday, me and a guy from our Edgewood campus, while many of our people were doing eye exams and uh, Dr. Maloof and her team are doing all those things, we're out playing basketball. There's people coloring with kids, and we're just building relationships. And I got a privilege of just hanging out and playing basketball. A guy, a young man in sixth grade named Tony. Tony desperately needs Jesus. And you know what he needed more than anything? Just somebody to love on him and encourage him. Just to play basketball, ask him a few questions. And see, the goal is not to solve the epidemic that we have going on with more money. What we solve it with is with Jesus, the one who changes things. I'm a firm believer that the way that we get our life in order is to meet the one who can order it. The God of order. And maybe you're here in this room and you go, yeah, that's really great. I mean, that's awesome. I'd love to change a small town. I mean, I would love to make a big impact here, but I have a hard time understanding how to impact something when I don't even know that God can impact my situation. Can I just tell you that he can? And he desires to? I mean, that right now, even where you are and in your marriage or in your relationship with your kids or maybe you're a grandparent and you're like, man, I wish I would have had this message. I would have realized and invested more or had this church 15 years ago. It's not too late. And the biggest deal is this, is you don't have to be in a big church and a big town to make a big difference. Because at the end of the day, what makes a big difference isn't money, it's time. You know how disciples are made? Disciples are not made because you spend more money on ministries. Disciples aren't made because you have great education. Disciples aren't made because you give lots of great health care benefits. Disciples are made because after a few years of spending time with someone, something rubs off. That's Jesus. The last time I remember reading when Jesus called Peter and John, 
Philip and Nathaniel. He didn't say, hey, come and follow me because I got some great benefits. I got, <laughs> man, I got a really great 403. I mean, he didn't say any of those things. But you know what somebody told me recently? Brandon, as your church grows, you're going to have a really hard time getting adequate staff because not many people want to go to small town, rural areas and be a part. And you know what? I disagree. You know why I disagree? Because at the end of the day, we can make as big of a difference out here as we could anywhere else. Yes, the critical mass is different. The people are different. The economic, the health care, the education challenge are all different. But here's what different means. It means that if Jesus was from a small town and he can use ordinary to extraordinary, it means that every challenge we have gives an opportunity for God to move in a bigger way. And you may go, well, okay, what, what in the world is my next step? Well, you could start serving somewhere within one of our school districts locally and be a mentor. You could get your journey group together. And you know what? You could commit this week in conversation over a table and dinner together. You could say, you know what? I think it's reasonable that our group could accomplish two projects a year for someone in need. That we could mow a yard, that we could um, serve someone in need in some way, tangible form, that we could even help a single mom with rent twice a year, that we would get together as a group and say, we're going to help meet her needs so that she can be home a little bit more. And we're going to collectively, as a group, we're going to pay for her rent twice in one year. That can happen. There are so many ways if we will just get our eyes up and begin to watch God do something. Listen, I don't have a desire to go anywhere else. I don't know how long the Lord has me planted here, but here's what I do know. It's for now, and it's for a time, and it's for a season. And one of the reasons that we started the year off the way we did and then moved in to our membership series that we just finished um, last week with our prayer service is just so we could remind you why we're here and why I think the Lord wants us to dig in. And I pray that you'll join me in that. I'm looking forward to this series. Listen, if you know somebody that doesn't go to church, they can learn a whole lot about their small town in the next four weeks. Because what we're going to do is we're going to begin to dive into ways that we believe that the small town church can benefit from a big time God. And I pray you'll be here to join us over the next few weeks. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you that God, you have always chosen to use um, the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. You've used the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God, you've used the low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, things that are nothing, so that life change could happen. And, and you use weak and feeble people like Peter and weak and feeble people like Mary and David and Gideon. And Moses, because at the end of the day, you don't want any of us human beings boasting of the presence of God. You don't want us to take credit for something you do. And so, Lord, we know that everything that we see here today, even within this body, is ultimately because you have accomplished it. Lord, we know we got nothing to offer to you. But, God, we thank you that in spite of us having nothing to offer, Lord, we believe you're a big God and that you, through your Son, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, born of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, Lord, ultimately 
helps produce righteousness and sanctification and redemption in our lives. And I pray, God, that you would mold us, shape us, and help us realize that even though 95% of the world's poverty is found in counties like ours, that, God, we can, we can make a difference. So, Lord, help us, re- remind us, revive us, and show us how you are a big God. We love you, we thank you, we bless you because you have blessed us. In Jesus' name, amen.